0: I'm Shelley Schlender. This is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, April 4th, 2023. Coming up, a symposium tonight on the legacy of the Rocky Flats Nuclear Weapons
1: Plan. Our great, great, great grandchildren are still going to have to be worrying about plutonium.
0: And we'll hear the Environmental Working Group's take on cancer-causing ingredients in Easter
2: candy. There's no legal requirement to stop using chemicals linked to cancer.
0: And Boulder naturalist Steve Jones and Ruth Carol Cushman will take us on a hunt for Boulder's Easter daisies.
3: Oh, I almost stepped on one of the Easter daisies here, just right under my foot.
0: The mountain grasslands in Tibet have been called the roof of the world. They're high, 13,000 feet above sea level. This Tibetan plateau is surrounded by even higher mountains. For thousands of years, Tibetan nomad herders have lived in harmony within these mountains, helping their native grasslands flourish, and in this way, being part of an ecosystem where the grasslands help protect the permafrost from thawing, which in turn keeps the snowfall and glaciers cold enough, they don't melt too quickly. Rapidly melting glaciers could lead to floods, plus a shortage of water in between the floods. And it's a problem that an expert on the Tibetan ecology says is becoming more critical due to climate change and due to aggressive economic development of the region by the occupying Chinese. Lobsong is a PhD environment researcher. She's in Boulder this week to explain what she calls a crucial time to protect both the nomads and the grasslands
4: on Tibet's Rift of the World. Almost 70% of the Tibetan landscape is grassland, but recently with the economic development and also climate change, we see grassland degradation on the Tibetan plateau. What's wrong with degrading this? The grass doesn't grow back? The grassland is becoming deserts.
0: What is there about building roads? and building dams that would turn the grasslands into desert.
4: Because of the pollution and so many Chinese immigrants coming into Tibet, Tibet is warming two to three times faster than the rest of the world.
0: Is that because a higher altitude yeah. place yeah. is more subject to being warm faster? Yeah. Is there something about having a grassland that is more preserving of the snow?
4: Exactly. Tibet has also a huge permafrost.
0: Permafrost?
4: Yeah. Yeah. Permafrost helps to absorb the carbon dioxide. Earlier, you know, in winter times, when we have a snow, it becomes a glacier. Now, since the temperature is rising and it's warmer, the snowfalls are not able to become glaciers.
0: Oh, because if the ground is exposed, it gets warmer faster.
4: Yeah, Tibet is known as the water tower of Asia. Some of the major Asian rivers all flows from Tibet.
0: Native Tibetan and Ph.D. environment researcher Lobsong will speak about the perils facing the native nomads and the crucial grasslands at the Riff of the World Wednesday, that's tomorrow, at CU Boulder and the Naropa campus. We'll link to those events on our website, howonearthradio.org. Retus University will conduct a symposium about the nuclear legacy of Rocky Flats. The keynote speaker is Chris Iverson, the author of a book titled Full Body Burden, Growing Up in the Nuclear Shadow of Rocky Flats. And now, here's Chris Iverson.
1: Rocky Flats is one of the most important historical and environmental stories in the history of the United States. It is at the heart of the Cold War There was extensive radioactive and toxic contamination that continue to the present day. Well, Kristen Iverson, for people who drive
0: between Golden and Boulder, there's just a little sign that says Rocky Flats. Somebody who doesn't know the history of what happened there may not know that it was a nuclear weapons plant that was top secret and made one of the most toxic substances around called plutonium.
1: That's exactly right. Rocky Flats began production in the early 1950s. What they produced, unbeknownst to the public, was plutonium uh, triggers for nuclear weapons. That is the heart of every nuclear bomb produced in the United States. That's quite amazing to think. It was
0: less than 15 miles from Boulder, really less than 20 miles from Denver, this plant making this very powerful and dangerous stuff.
1: Right. and I worked at Rocky Flats, there were almost 6,000 people working there. Workers were not allowed to talk about the kind of work that they did. Going all the way back to the early 1950s, it was all top secret. They were not subject in the early years to any kind of environmental regulation. Over the course of almost 40 years, Rocky Flats produced more than 70,000 plutonium pits or triggers for nuclear weapons. And each one of those triggers contained enough breathable particles of plutonium to kill every person on Earth. You grew up downwind of Rocky Flats. Well, I grew up in Arvada, not far from Stanley Lake. We were pretty much directly downwind from fires that created toxic and radioactive clouds that passed over our neighborhood. Westminster, Broomfield, Superior, certainly parts of Boulder, anything southeast of the plant was most directly affected. But as Dr. Carl Johnson, who was the health director of Jefferson County, when a lot of this contamination was actively happening, he recommended that anyone within a 30 mile radius of Rocky Flats should be concerned and he recommended that there be no new home building within that 30 mile radius although some of the bigger fires like the one in 1957 or 1969 created a large enough toxic cloud that it traveled beyond the Colorado border there was a push among
0: citizens to close Rocky Flats, and Rocky Flats was finally closed, and then it went through being a Superfund site with a huge cleanup. Now, when we fast forward to today, what is Rocky Flats and what is its impact?
1: If a person were to drive down Highway 93, for example, and look over at the site, they would see open land. There would be no signage that would tell them what happened there or why it might be potentially dangerous to hike or bike at the Rocky Flats. National Wild Refuge. What happened after the cleanup, and let me emphasize, it was a compromised cleanup. The site is not pristine by any means. There's still a great deal of contamination on site. Every time we have a major event like the flood in 2017 or the Marshall Fire more recently, we have a new concern about how much contamination is coming off site and still continuing to affect current residents around Rocky Flats. You know, our great, great, great grandchildren are still going to have to be worrying about plutonium at Rocky Flats.
0: Kristen Iverson, when people go to the event happening at Regis tonight, will they get a chance to ask the experts questions?
1: This is a very unique and dynamic event that's happening tonight. I'm going to be talking about the history. And the legacy of Rocky Flats. Then I'm going to be joined by a panel of experts that are extraordinary. John Lipsky, who was the FBI agent who led the raid on Rocky Flats, Dr. Mark Johnson, who was past president of the Colorado Medical Society and the health director for Jefferson County.
0: We've been talking about a nuclear weapons plant. What about the latest generation of nuclear power plants? There are climate specialists. People in the Department of Energy who argue that to combat global climate change, we might be better off if we have some of the latest generation of nuclear power plants online because they are the quickest way we can get to having less carbon being put into the atmosphere. Do you have an opinion about that from what you've seen with Rocky Flats?
1: Let me say this. We do not have a history or a standard of truth and transparency in this country between the Department of Energy and the public. And that includes, to some extent, the EPA or CDPHE, the Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment. Until we can trust these institutions to provide full and accurate information with respect to the potential risks of these technologies, I think we have to be very skeptical.
0: Chris Iverson will speak at tonight's symposium, The Nuclear Legacy of Rocky Flats. Tonight's symposium is at Regis University in Denver. The event starts at 6 p.m. This is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Shelley Schlender. Stay tuned for a scientific look, Add Easter candy. And to get ready, here's some Easter candy music.
3: I got some memories of Easter. When I was growing up, I didn't have Easter. In my family, but my friend did. They celebrated every year. And they invited me over there. And every year when I would go there, there
0: would be candy everywhere. And I couldn't believe my eyes. I said, why do you do this every year? There's just candy everywhere. It's like Halloween part two. This Sunday is Easter Sunday, when many kids start the day by hunting for Easter candy. It's a fun way to start spring, but guess what? The European Union has banned some Easter candy ingredients because they carry a cancer risk. So, candy makers sell candy in Europe without those risky chemicals. Here in the U.S., those risky chemical ingredients are still allowed, including in Easter candy. The Environmental Working Group would like to change that. For more, here's the Environmental Working Group's Senior Vice President, Scott Faber.
2: Peeps. And those candied eggs that we all love so much contain chemicals that have been linked to cancer or damage to our DNA. And what's especially disappointing is that they're not necessary. You can have beautiful, delicious, colorful Easter candies without using chemicals linked to cancer.
0: Scott Faber, it sounds like the European Union has already outlawed many of these chemicals you're concerned about. They're getting candy that doesn't have these things in it, but we are.
2: Yeah. You know, we love our children just as much as Europeans love their children. They have all the same wonderful Easter candies that we enjoy. They look just as wonderful as the candies we enjoy. We simply don't need to use these chemicals, red three and titanium dioxide, that have been banned in the EU, but are still unfortunately being used in Easter candies sold in the United States. The EPA, the FDA, they've known for many, many decades that these chemicals are linked to cancer and other serious health harms, and they simply failed to act. So now it's up to states like California to simply do what the FDA has refused to do, which is to say, use one of the thousands of other chemicals to make these candies look delicious and stop using chemicals linked to cancer.
0: Oh, so in California, they don't have these chemical laden candies, as much as they do in other states?
2: Well, they might not. There's a bill that's been introduced in California. It will be heard by a key committee on April 11th, just after Easter. That bill would ban five of these chemicals. It would be the first state to do so. Unfortunately, that won't come in time for Easter. But if the California legislature is successful, it's very likely that those chemicals could be removed from candies the next time we celebrate Easter.
0: You know, Scott Faber, With the Environmental Working Group, does this mean that very sweet candies are good for kids? If we took (laughs) these things out of it?
2: (laughs) I love candy. I certainly serve candy to my kids. Um, I don't think anyone, including the candy industry, would say that any of these treats are good for kids. They're treats, and they should be enjoyed once in a while, not all the time, but they should be enjoyed without worrying about whether or not they have a chemical linked to cancer, There are so many chemicals available to make our candies and other foods look great, taste great, last a long time that don't pose these same health risks. It's really just a matter of convenience for the food companies. They know there are alternatives available, safer alternatives, cheaper alternatives in many cases to these dangerous chemicals. That it's just inconvenient for them to change their recipes.
0: Could it be convenient to still have a little candy sprinkled in the Easter eggs, but have some Easter eggs I've heard of families where they put puzzle pieces in the Easter eggs, or they put little tattoos that are water tattoos, which you can put on and take off. In other words, when people find an Easter egg, some of them don't even have candy in them. They have something else that's fun.
2: Well, I am I'm, I'm I'm very strongly pro-candy, but I, I agree. There are lots of ways to celebrate Easter. We can all celebrate Easter or Passover or Groundhog Day, if it's not still not too late to celebrate Groundhog Day, it wasn't that long ago, without eating candies that contain these chemicals. Unfortunately, there's no legal requirement to stop using chemicals linked to cancer or reproductive harm or even neurological harm or immune system harm. The good news is these food companies have shown they will quickly reformulate away from chemicals linked to cancer. We've seen that in Europe. When the European regulator said enough's enough, you can't use these chemicals linked to cancer anymore, companies were able to reformulate virtually overnight so that people could continue, consumers could continue to enjoy the foods they love with a little bit less of the chemicals they hate. Scott
0: Faber is with the Environmental Working Group. You can find out more about their efforts to kick risky additives out of Easter candy at the Environmental Working Group website. You're tuned to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Shelley Schlender. Hunting for Easter egg candy isn't the only way to celebrate Easter. An alternative is to go out in nature searching for signs of spring near Boulder's beautiful flat irons, or seek out another geological treasure such as one that's near the highway heading toward Lyons. It's an area known as the Six Mile Fold. It's a softly rolling rocky region that's not dramatic. Geologically, the Six Mile Fold is something of a wonder, and it's the home of a rather wondrous plant, a very tough little flower that this year is just now blooming. Up next, Let's go with Boulder naturalist Steve Jones and Ruth Carol Cushman as they search for Easter daisies.
5: It's a bright, sunny, but very cold spring morning, and we've come out to Six Mile Fold, which is one of the most celebrated geologic sites in Boulder County. And the reason it's called a fold is we're standing atop a ridge in the foothills near Highway 36 north of Boulder. And this is an area, of course, where the Rocky Mountains rose upward, about 70 million years ago. So as they rose upward, they create these 45-degree slanted ridges. Most of them are sort of like a straight line. If you look at the flat irons, it looks like they just sort of rose up altogether. But here, the rock is a Niobrara sandstone, and is a little softer than a lot of the rocks that rose up. As it rose, it also twisted around, forming a big S-shape. It's all whitish rocks, and the rocks around them have eroded away, and it creates this amazing S-shape going all the way from the highway back up toward the mountains and then twisting around, all because of that warping and folding as this rose up. And if you look at it from an airplane, you see this white S here, which is the Niobrara formation. And the Easter daisies will only grow in these shale formations. They love limestones actually in Boulder County because they can't compete. Where, where we're standing right now is on some shortgrass prairie here. And you don't see any Easter daisies here, but if we go over to the sandstone and limestone, the whitish rocks, we'll see the Easter daisies growing there. This is also a great place to see seashells. And we have clam shells here that are almost as big as your hand and we may see some of those a little later because these are all marine rock formations going back 70 to 100 million years when this was all under ocean.
3: And sometimes you can find little tiny oyster shells. I found one once it was almost turquoise blue underneath and I was going to lead a trip here the next week so I turned it around so turquoise wasn't showing and hid it so I could show it to people and then I couldn't find it myself the next week. (laughs)
5: So we're just going to walk along this S, this white S, which is the Niobrara Formation, and see what we can see.
3: Uh, We just stumbled on a little clump of Easter daisies. They're not yet in full bloom, but you can see the pinkish bud. About a week ago, they were in full bloom. I think it's just been a little too cloudy this morning. It's a plant in the daisy family, and it starts off with the pink buds, and then they flare out into white daisies with bright yellow centers. This is
5: like the cushion plants you see in the alpine tundra. It's blooming out of a cushiony green mat, a very tightly densed We're standing on the Niobrara formation here, which is this white rock which forms the fold itself. And the reason the daisy is here... As you'll notice, there are no other plants around it. It has a really deep taproot, and it goes down maybe eight inches. And it can extract moisture and nutrients from the soils here, whereas very few other plants can. And so these Easter daisies just grow in these shales and limestones here in the foothills. That's the only place they can grow, because other places they can't compete. And the reason we're so excited about seeing an Easter daisy is, despite its name... They often begin blooming in late November in Boulder County, so they're our earliest wildflower. This year they didn't because we had a lot of snow in November. The ground was covered with snow into February, and they're just starting to bloom now, about three months late. And that gives you an idea how persistently cold our winter has been. But when they burst into bloom, they have these beautiful white flowers with bright yellow centers.
3: And there's another clump over here that still is not fully open, but uh, oh, and there's one by Steve's foot that's almost fully open. So we're seeing, once you see one, you see another and another and another.
5: The bluish-green mat is cushion-like. It's about four inches across. It's just clinging to this taproot. It's anchored. You couldn't pull this out. It's anchored to the cracks between these shale rocks here. It's cold this morning, it's 30 degrees, so they haven't had a chance to quite fully open. About a 30 degree morning, all the flowers are gonna be closed up. As we walk, they'll get more and more open. So we've been walking south along this ridge of white, shale. So this ridge that constitutes Six Mile Fold, the rock is called Niobrara Formation, which is different kinds of sandstone. But it's actually made of several different layers of shales and limestones. We're behind the fold now. We're sitting on limestone here that's almost white. If you look into this limestone, you can see it is full of clam shells. There's one that's a almost as big as my hand. We're just seeing the uh, fossilized version of it, and it's dark because you can't see calcium anymore because it's been stripped away. But they're just big, round clamshells, and this is called the Fort Hayes limestone here. And you can recognize it by its whiteness from the air. This area would look very white. And so we know this was part of the ancient Cretaceous seabed, and this would probably be in the 85 million years old. What I like about it here is it's so peaceful because we're behind the fold and we're away from the traffic on U.S. 36 and you've got this beautiful pure white limestone formation. Of course limestone means it's made up of critters. In addition to the clamshells there are tiny critters that formed this rock 85 million years ago. One thing about these um, softer limestones is there are all sorts of plants growing out of them. And if you look up in this Fort Hays limestone you're going to see lots and lots of prickly pear cactus. Just like the Easter daisies they're anchored with roots that go into the cracks in the limestone. So this whole hillside on our right, this rocky hillside is covered with prickly pear cactus. And then you get shrubs. We have a willow, where, oh, I guess it's an alder we're looking up here that's just going to be coming into leaf in a week or two and smooth sumac and other shrubs that grow out of these rocks. This is a great place in the summer to take a nap or something. It's a peaceful spot. A reddish butterfly just flew away at our feet, and it's, what, 38 degrees. But it's sunny and nice here.
3: Oh, I almost stepped on one of the Easter daisies here, just right under my foot, and it looks like it's there are about a dozen little flowers on one clump. What's that
5: line here? It's later in the morning and the easter daisies have finally unfurled and we have one. It's a cushiony plant with I would guess 30 oh. daisy blossoms and the, you know, they're about an inch across with a nice bright yellow centers and the beautiful white gray petals right here gro- growing right out of this rock this sand. one yet
3: you can't even see the leaves the flowers are so thick on it
5: There are actually 50 flowers on this one little cushion that's very beautiful to see. Yeah. If you want to find Six Mile Fold, go to the Boulder County Parks and Open Space website and you can find some information about it there. I bet they lead uh, geology hikes up here occasionally, don't they? They do. They have interpretive walks up here. That might make it easier to find. It's very fragile here. I think it helps if people are really educated before they come here, because if you just blundered across it, you probably wouldn't see anything. We took, yeah, they wouldn't know how to keep from on it. I mean, every time we breathe, we harm the environment, but we can try to reduce our impacts a little bit.
0: Steve Jones and Ruth Carol Cushman are friends, and Boulder naturalists. And they remind everyone that the natural areas around Boulder are often very fragile and contain rare plants. Stay on the trails. Never pick wildflowers. But enjoy them and the wonders of nature, maybe even this Easter weekend. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Beth Bennett. This week's show was produced by yours truly, Shelley Schlender. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from Keith Manley's Song About Rocky Flats, Penny Bank about Easter Candy, and music from Chick Corea and the JPC Ensemble, and by Jonathan Goldman. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and hot links. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Shelley Schlender.